0: Welcome to Better Sex. I'm your host, Matthew Chambers. Each episode, I aim to have conversations with culturally and spiritually engaging guests. Some you'll know, and some you won't. Some you'll agree with, and some you won't. But hopefully, all of us will come away challenged. Hopefully, all of us will come away a little bit wiser. Hopefully, we'll seek and find. Maybe a more empathetic view of humanity, or a more expansive view of spirituality perhaps even a deeper view of how to navigate the life we've been given. I'm still learning my way around this whole podcast business, so please bear with me as I figure out microphones and sound and levels and making sure the Wi-Fi works properly the entire time. These conversations are absolutely worth it. I promise. Great Mark Twain wrote that travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with Dr. Larisha Hawkins and filmmaker Linda Midget. This is a deep dive into what it means to stand with the hurting and the oppressed, a deep dive into what it truly means to be human to share ourselves with other humans, even when it means we risk everything, our job, reputation, security. Dr. Hawkins found herself face-to-face with that reality when she made international news and was ultimately fired as a tenured professor from Wheaton College for wearing a hijab and standing in solidarity with Muslims. As a Christian woman of color, she had been incensed and heartbroken by comments made toward Muslims by prominent evangelicals such as Jerry Falwell Jr. and decided to act along with several students from one of her classes. This story ended up as a documentary by Linda Midget called Same God, and they joined me to share their incredible journey today. There is so much wisdom in this dialogue. Linda and Larisha share openly and vulnerably. There is much conviction to be felt if we have ears to hear. So please sit back, open your heart wide for this episode of Better Sex. Today, I am chatting with uh, the filmmaker Linda Midget and Dr. Larisha Hawkins, uh, who um, several years ago, while she was a professor, a tenured professor at Wheaton in Chicago, uh, found herself in the midst of a little bit of controversy um, that has sort of uh, changed her life in many ways um and along the way she then connected with filmmaker linda midgett and they created uh a film together about larisha's story called same god so um linda and larisha thank you so much uh for being on with me today i'm really grateful to to hear your stories and and talk a little bit about this world that we find ourselves immersed in right now so thank
1: you thank you
0: um I guess I'm curious, first of all, uh, Larisha, I mean, your story happened before you ever met Linda. I assume you guys didn't know each other before all the things went down in Chicago. Um, but I and, and I'm going to post links to the story in, in the podcast page. And so if the people really want to go back and read the whole deal, they can do that. So we can skip over some of those things. But one of the things that I'm most curious about when when. Um, unique moments like this happen in our societies is sort of the journey to that decision. And it can be very short, but there's, what was, what's the thing that causes somebody to go, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to say this, or I'm going to share this, or I'm going to go here. Um, So when the shooting happens um, uh, in San Bernardino, what, what was the thing for you that you sat down and decided I've, I've got to post this photo. I have to do this thing. I need to, you know, share this, my solidarity with Muslim women. And uh, can you talk a little bit about even just your process to get there?
1: Yeah. Um, we, we just uh, found out in chatting before we started recording that you've done work in Uganda and I'm on the board of an organization in Rwanda that's reconciling Hutus and Tutsis. Mm-hmm. And, um, I I feel very fortunate to have even ever set foot in Rwanda. A colleague of mine was supposed to be visiting one of his students there who was working for six months in an NGO there. Um, And it was it's an indigenous NGO. There's a program at the university um, called Human needs and global resources, mm-hmm. and students themselves go to various underdeveloping, um, underdeveloped, and developing countries to serve at um, organizations that are, you know, it's not like USAID. It's not, it's right, right. um, not an American nonprofit like nestled in somewhere. It's not. We have something to give you. It's we're here to learn from mm-hmm. you and offer what we can um, according to your your needs and your direction. Mm. So I always told my students like to think about it as you're being extended hospitality by an organization for six months. Wow, yeah. Um, and you think you're going because you're a brilliant college student and you got selected for this prestigious program. Mm. And like, we need to think of it the other way around. So it wasn't the first time I had been um, in a place of, of great, um, you know, I like to say brokenness and beauty. Um, But the genocide in Rwanda in 94 is perhaps one of the most, um, you know, damning atrocities of our humanity Mm -hmm. in my lifetime. Um, You know, my grandparents, my, my grandfather fought in World War II. So the Holocaust is something that feels like history it's very close to my parents Mm -hmm. who are baby boomers but not close to me like i'm not a holocaust denier but i wasn't alive when it Mm -hmm. happened i see i can see the numbers the tattoos on holocaust survivors arms but like being in rwanda and sitting under a tree listening to um direct perpetrator and survivor dyads of people telling their stories Mm -hmm. and choosing um Reconciliation and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I even hesitate to use the word reconciliation because it's such a buzzword um, in many Christian circles that really is kind of shallow in my humble opinion when it's used, Um, not the concept, but the way it functions and operates um, in these days around racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Um, Hard fought reconciliation, such as um, there's there's one gentleman and the man sitting next to him killed every member of his family save a nephew. Yeah. And so it's the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they've decided to live in community because Rwanda is a country of very close proximity. Yeah. Um, yeah. People aren't moving far away. And if they do, um, it's always toward family, it's always toward community, not away. So 20 years after the genocide, when people are being released from prison um, and coming back to the communities where they shed their neighbors' blood, um, what do you do? Mm. And so Rwandan, Rwanda is a land of, um, they say a million smiles, you know? And um, everyone smiles, everyone is hardworking, everyone's beautiful, everyone dresses every day and goes about their business. And this generation, this first generation post-genocide, some of them don't even really know what happened, whether their family was Hutu or Tutsi, Mm. and the trauma is continuing. And so how to not just put a patch on the trauma and say, you know, there's not Hutu, there's not Tutsi, there's one Rwanda, which is the governmental line, how to press into um, the brutality and choose to live together as opposed to you know, walking around one another as though nothing happened, because that too is killing people. It's killing their souls, it's killing their bodies. And so I listened to these stories, you know, this man who was a victim um, of the genocide talking about how it ravaged his physical body such that he couldn't sleep. Um, except upright And so basically he was probably describing Very severe ulcers uh-huh. And he was so angry and bitter About the genocide and what he had lost That he was planning to kill his own family And his wife was going to this Reconciliation workshop The next day So he decided he would go with her instead um, Before he killed them And then he found out like What holding on to hatred and bitterness Does psychologically uh-huh. um, And these are in many cases in these villages, these older folks um, are not literate, but to see, you know, these visuals of how holding on to hatred overflows and outpours changed his life. And he decided not to kill his family. And then good news. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he good. said, I cry all the time now and his wife is sitting next to him. And she was like, yeah. And he said, I used to raise my cane to them every day. Meaning he used to beat his mm-hmm. family every day. He said, now I hug them all the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to see this like um palpable forgiveness of the guy on the other side of the circle who um had participated in, in killing his family. And he said, I used to like make him fix things for me for free because work on my motorcycle for free. Mm-hmm. He said, now because of all of the years that I took from him, I give money to him every time I see him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the, he's the, he's the guy who was the victim mm-hmm. and he's remunerating the perpetrator because he feels as his brother in humanity, he had been cheating him. And this is what I witnessed. And I was like, Whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end they said, professor, I know this is a long story, but it's no,
0: I, I love they this. Said, stuff." Professor,
1: um, what do you think? Why are you crying? I was crying. Um, and, uh, I said, I, I got, I was, I was sitting in a classroom at Rice University taking an East African history class in 94 mm-hmm. when the genocide began on Easter day. Um, and I told them that, and I said, um, I'm sorry um, that my country did not have the eyes to see. Um, in fact, uh, the United States pulled, um, It's UN peacekeeping troops. It pulled um, all of the embassy workers. There was one lone kind of Catholic woman who stayed. She was eventually killed and tried to warn all of the the Western embassies, like what was happening. And, um, and we all fled. And, um, and I, and I told them, I said, you know, I am a Christian and I said, what I feel like I've seen today is what, we believe Jesus does for us that um, that we love our neighbor and that we um, live the Sermon on the Mount. That um, this is radical um, a radical way of pouring out yourself on behalf of other people. Uh-huh. Um, and a gentleman said, "I'm not Christian. I'm Muslim, but I love Jesus too." <laughs> and then I just I was like, "But but I, I said I have seen Jesus, and you are my teachers." And so, what I learned, what I learned there, changed my life. Um, and it was an assemblage of trips to places like India, um, um, Peru, um, various places across the world, uh-huh. where the people with the least materially have taught me the most about what it means to um, be human. Uh-huh. I mean, that's just the the most essential way to say it not Christian human yeah what does it mean to be human it means to literally see the image of God the sacrality um the fact that we are all formed of the same primordial clay mm-hmm. right um we are one humanity and to s- that they are living as though that is the most Radical truth. And I don't see many Christians who live that way. But everywhere I go in the quote unquote underdeveloped world, where they have little material to offer, they have humanity to offer. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's often displayed in overflowing, abundant hospitality, which is also for me, um, who grew up as a Christian. The vision of the, depending on if you grew up Baptist like me, Mm -hmm. the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. you grew up Baptist, you know,
0: know all about that. The Eucharist,
1: um, whatever you call it, um, the Lord's table, is this picture of overflowing hospitality Mm -hmm. and where um, we are not only consuming the body of Christ, we are being consumed by the totality of the reality of radical egalitarian um you know no, no hierarchy no vertical uh, you know you're at the bottom I'm at the top we're all equal mm-hmm. and that over feasts at tables people's eyes are opened to see the Jesus to see a different reality um, abundant hospitality is not about the quality of the food it's about the quality of our presence together yeah and I have seen that most abundantly in the places that Westerners despise as having nothing to offer, and so I began to call it learning from below because that's you know that's the mentality of my students, right? <clears throat> and um, yeah, it's the perspective of the oppressed. If we want to get into liberation theology, we, um, we, the perspective of the oppressed <laughs> has changed my life. Yeah. You know? And it changes, I believe, I'm a political science professor, our politics. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a weird coming together at that moment of um, students outraged by the comments, back to San Bernardino, Mm -hmm. of Jerry Falwell Jr. Mm -hmm. um, saying in their, what they call convocation, but it's essentially chapel, required chapel, thousands of students. It's not like Wheaton. It's like Multiple thousands of students. That if Muslims walked into the Liberty Flames Auditorium gym, that if if everyone had what he had in his back pocket, namely a gun, that he would and pulled out his trigger finger. We could end the Muslims before they end mm-hmm. us. My students were outraged, and no one in the white evangelical world dared to call him out. Richard Land did eventually, yeah. but not immediately. Wheaton College's president did not. And so two of my students wrote an op-ed and asked me to proofread it, um, sent it to the Washington Post. It got in. Um, and so my, I'm being called by reporters to comment on my, what my students did. And then another student said, I want to wear a hijab on the plane home. Can you help me think about what to do? And it was her prompting. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was just kind of like, I, hadn't, I wasn't thinking about the hijab um necessarily and then the student said that and I was like yeah well let me call my friends in the Muslim community and uh yeah and so that's where the story kind of unfolded and then I decided well I'm gonna write this Facebook post about my intention why I'm wearing the hijab Uh Um, and I mentioned we worship the same god um and put a picture of myself in the hijab that night and then the rest is uh history. The, the post went viral and um, <laughs> it was the last week of class heading into final exams.
0: So, well, and I want to come back to the same God idea anyway. Um, but Linda, for you, were you watching this unfold in real time or did you stumble across it later? I mean, there was the, I feel like, Over the past several years, the news cycles in the United States are just it's like a a damn fire hydrant all the time. There are so many things. It's hard to know where to look. It's hard to know how to listen or who to listen to. Um, It's hard to even rank, you know, the importance of different things um, just based on how fast it's coming at us. So were you and that that wasn't any different back then, um, really. But were you following this in real time or did you did you come across it later?
2: Um yeah, I was following it in real time. Um, you know, and I do think that five years ago, I mean, this this will be five years ago in December mm. to, to December 2015, um <clears throat> things weren't quite what they were now. I think that a lot of um the the polarization that we experience, the um the freneticness of the news cycle. Mm-hmm of the news cycle, which I, I do think has accelerated with our current president. I agree. I agree with that for (laughs) sure. Absolutely. Um, I I think, yeah, so there is a sense where it was all there. It was all happening. Um, I did not have eyes to see it. I know that Larisha did. I know that now, but I was not somebody who did. I just was sort of your average person, you know, going through life and, um, noticing some changes, Mm -hmm. but, but it was sort of in the periphery of my vision, right? Like I was noticing like the rhetoric against, uh, immigrants had Mm -hmm. taken this really sharp turn. And I noticed that because I had done a film on immigration reform Mm -hmm. several years before that. So there were some things like that, that I was aware of, but, um, no, with, with, uh, with Dr. Hawkins, um, it popped up on my newsfeed that a professor at Wheaton College was wearing a hijab in solidarity with Muslim women. And I noticed it because I'm a graduate of Wheaton College. Um, look at that. I'm a woman of the school. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this is, you know, unusual to see Wheaton in the news <laughs> for such a thing. But I'll be honest, I read it and I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I forgot about it. I mean, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Like I then you know, was went on my merry way. And I think it was about two days later, <laughs> suddenly I was like, oh, wow. Like all hell is broken loose <laughs> because of this. Yeah. It got real on. messy,
0: real fast.
2: It, it really did. Like it was sort of, it, 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 it mushroomed, you know, overnight. And so I, you know, have a group of, um, friends from Wheaton and we have a little Facebook thread and we were all, we all started talking about it. We're like, are you, you know, are you watching this? If you've been paying attention to what's going on here. So I was just a curious bystander, you know, like everybody else initially. Um, But as it went on, the thing that really captured my attention was how polarized um, Wheaton alumni were over what she had done. So some people thought she was a heretic, other people were like, yeah, it seems kind of Jesus y. She's <laughs> kind of reaching out. Kind of Jesus y. I mean, like, but it's, like, that's a you kind of get it. I mean it's an official you know, term, it, I think. Yeah, it's Jesusy. <laughs> it was Jesus. That's the way I beat it. That's my language for it. So um, and that polarization was remarkable to me because I had not seen that. It's not that it wasn't happening, but it was not out in the open. And so there oh. are that's my dog, did you hear my dog? Gee, dog. dog. Yeah. See? I told you,
0: yeah,
1: I know it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I welcome all distractions in my Zoom class, yeah. please, please, especially um, cute kids and puppies.
0: Cute kids and puppies, <laughs> yes, all
2: Anyways, kids are cute. That was really the part that, um, I started wondering how is it that you know we've all gone to the same Christian college, <laughs> we all had the same professors, we read the same Bible. We you know, have been taught so many of the similar things. How is it that we are so far apart in how we view this? And so um, my interest in exploring that is what really led me to to do the film because I was certainly interested in what was happening to Dr. Hawkins, but I didn't know her at the time. Right. So, you know, I didn't know her personally. So she was just this figure, you know, in my mind. Um, but my what I saw was that this seemed very emblematic of something much bigger that was going on that that I wanted to explore.
0: Well, and Larisha, I I'm curious on your side, um, you know, even before you and Linda connected for the first time, um, in your, like, so for instance, your call to your, some your know, muslim friends um to just sort of run the idea by them um i'm i'm curious one kind of how did that go how did you frame it how did they react to it and two mm-hmm. you know and you're working with these students who are writing this op-ed piece that gets picked up and then you write your post in in and sometimes i think we do things and we kind of know this is probably going to this is probably going to spark some reaction, but you know, as you're having these dialogues with your Muslim friends and kind of working out the details of here's how we want to frame this, were you looking down the road thinking this is going to turn into something? I mean, what what was that that like in those those first few moments?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'm a professor um, at the intersection of race, ethnicity, religion, and politics. So my entire time at Wheaton College, um, I was in part hired to teach at the intersection of race and religion. I was, um, replacing someone and his main, you know, Ballywick was religion and politics. Mm -hmm. He was one of my, um, you know, academic kind of mentors out there. And so it was, it just is like, it's interesting that, um, I, in my body, I embody, um, I'm a black woman for your listeners who may not know. And um, I embody those things I study. I grew up in the black church. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was a pastor. Um, and so when I find myself studying this in grad school, cause literally I didn't choose it, it's weird. Social scientists <laughs> all have stories kind of <laughs> like this. You either choose what's opposite of who we are or kind of right. like we find ourselves studying ourselves. Right? And then, um, But all that to say, I wanted to be very careful about respecting um, Islam as a religion first. Of course. I taught a class called Religion and Politics at Wheaton. At that point, I think I had taught it three times. And the last two times I taught it, um, I brought in a friend who was on the board of the Council on American. Islamic relations in Chicago. Um, so he worked at there. He worked there, um, and he was there, kind of government affairs representative. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his exact title, but he he came and talked about the intersection between Islam and politics, mm. and you know, demonstrating that you know there are multiple traditions. Islam is not a monolith, right? right? We've got you know, we've got Shia. We you know we've got various um, iterations. If we want to think about Saudi Arabia, right? Um, And so, that being said, I had invited Muslim speakers to campus before, um, and I had a relationship with this person and another Muslim, um, because I served on a board, an ecumenical board um, at the intersection of uh, religion and labor, like Mm. um, the rights of workers, the rights and dignity of workers. So because I had these friends who were in kind of, um, you know, broad level representative um, Muslim institutions in the United States, Um, CARE is a civil rights organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And I called and I said, I have some students who are interested in this. And I said, "Um, I, I, I will not advise them to do this if you don't give the blessing because the hijab is a sacred, um, it's it's literally a scarf, mm-hmm. right? But um, as a woman later explained to me the way that um, she thinks of the hijab and other some other Muslim women, maybe not all, is that wearing the hijab is um, honoring God with our body. Mm. And she said, um, in that way, every Muslim wears a hijab and how you present yourself, right? right? Not every Muslim woman puts a scarf on her head. Um, people veil. Muslim women veil very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wearing a scarf and covering is not um, the only way to demonstrate that. But I said, oh, we have a similar concept in Christianity. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about putting on the armor of mm-hmm. God, the bellicose imagery, notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there is this way that I that resonated with right. me, right? Um, shotting myself right Um, preparing your body for this metaphorical kind of spiritual warfare but not just fighting a war but being aware that our bodies are these temples Mm -hmm. right and so my colleague said let me talk to the women Appropriately, sure. right? Yeah.
0: Good answer. A man can't Good
1: his permission <laughs> for women to wear the hijab. And so he calls back and he said, Larisha, um, we love this idea. We have some friends at CBS Local News. You know, I'm gonna call them <laughs> and tell them what you guys are doing. And you know, because we view this as um a very genuine gesture and um I said, okay, are you sure? And he said, yes. And he said, and, and I'm the professor and he's my friend who has spoken to my class before. Right. He said, but we also want to make it educational. And so as your students wear their hijabs home over Christmas break, you know, through the airport, there'd been an uptick in women being, Muslim women being harassed in TSA, um, you know, more than they already are right. in the post 9-11 world. Like it was like, harassment on steroids mm-hmm. um after san bernardino yeah. as, as linda mentioned already and so um he said they need to be prepared for this and they sent us a list of kind of like these are your civil rights know your rights mm. as you go through. i'm just remembering this for the first time linda um they sent us this list of like know your rights because your students will they will assume your students are muslim yeah. and this is what they need to do this yeah. is how they need to act they can't go crazy you know tell them to keep a journal and in the spring semester i'll bring some of my um we'll bring some of the women on staff who wear hijab we'll recruit some muslim women who don't we'll have your students we will have you on a panel and we'll discuss like religious they didn't say solidarity right but we'll discuss these experiences uh-huh. um so we'll discuss islam christianity civil rights, these kinds of things. They said, well, make it a teaching opportunity. I was like, duh, why didn't Professor Hawkins think of that? (laughs) Um, But I was like, this is beautiful. But I got home that night and I still was like, so convicted, like, I don't wanna do anything to dishonor my Muslim sisters and brothers. So I was really conflicted. I emailed him Mm. again. Um, My friend's name is Gerald Hankerson and Gerald said Larisha. You really have our blessing. We see the heart of what you guys are doing. Mm. And so I said, okay. So I like pinned that um, Facebook post. I put on the hijab. I like to say, if I had known that post was going to go viral to your question, (laughs) I would have put on makeup because it was the end of a long day. It was like 10 (laughs) o'clock at night, central standard time. And then I hit um, submit. And I was thoughtful about the post. I mean, I started the post with like, this is about human solidarity. I don't love my Muslim neighbor because they're American. I love them because they're formed of the same primordial clay. <laughs> Secondarily, I see this as religious solidarity. So human solidarity, religious solidarity because we worship the same God and we're people of the book. And I quoted Pope Francis who just announced support for civil union. I unions. saw that, woo, that's woo.
0: a big deal. It's a woo, big woo. deal.
1: Um, and um, then, at the end, I mentioned what I called embodied solidarity. Will you join me in this embodied solidarity? My my Christmas wish, cause it's Advent also. So I'm wearing the hijab, not just for a photo up, I'm wearing it, I'm embodying it throughout the Christian season of Advent mm-hmm. in the way that during Lent, some of us take on um, the discipline, various disciplines, right? right? Um, as, as a devotion, um, as a kind of fast. And so that was, you know, academia, it's really hard to focus on um, that holy season, because it's exams, it's the end of the semester, it's grading, it's, you know, the normal kind of uh, secular things we do around Mm -hmm. this um, religious um, festival and celebration. And so I also thought of it as a way for me to be more disciplined in my own devotion during that time. And so, yeah, I had no clue. I thought it would be a local piece. <laughs> I, thought it, I, thought it, I knew it would be in the Trib, Chicago mm-hmm. Tribune because I had told the reporter who had called me about the San Bernardino stuff that I was gonna wear the hijab to church on Sunday. Um, but yeah, it went viral that next day, that Friday. Um, I was getting called by like MSNBC and all this stuff. But I was... I was in a thesis uh, defense for three hours. I had no clue,
0: <laughs> so that's your experience in as this is starting to pick up because it went it went viral. But then they're like, there's this divide that this polarized divide that happens pretty quickly. So you're in the yeah. middle of the storm. Linda, yeah. you're watching from outside the storm and kind of slowly processing. While Larisha's, <laughs> she's having to get hit in the face with, with, with the storm, you're processing it over a matter of days, weeks, whatever, as you're watching this unfold and these different news organizations pick this up. And, you know, of course now there's protests on campus and I mean, there's the whole thing is going on. What was the moment for you where you were like, I, I have to find a way to tell the story.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It was not um there were for, for one thing, it was like a it was like a thriller watching it every day. There was something new in the news. Yeah. So, I mean, trust me, I was not disappointed. I would be you know, it would pop up on my Google. You know, there are all these twists and turns. There were protests. There were articles being written. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of twists and turns with, um, with what was happening with Larisha on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think for me, now that I think about it, the, I think the moment my mouth hit the floor and it was like, what on earth is happening was, um, when after Christmas, this started, what day was it? Larisha it was December, December 15th. 15th. Okay. Wait. No, you made the, the post, post was December
1: the
2: 10th. Okay. So December the 10th. I mean, this is right before Christmas, right? Yeah. So there's all this controversy and then it's Christmas. And then I know that, you know, students are on break at Wheaton with administrators for several weeks. So I really thought, Oh, nothing's going to happen. And I could not believe that a couple of days after Christmas, it was announced that the provost had. Um,
0: but it, it happened so fast. It's not like the, it's not like yeah. you had months and months and months of, of things unfolding.
2: Oh, no, 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 no. This was like this. I mean, it, so it was January fourth. He moved to Terminator. So December fifteenth, she was suspended in the middle of. Finals. And there's sort of this like you know mm-hmm. hanging out period of what are we going to do? And then January fourth, he moves to terminate her and to end her tenure. And this was like upping the ante. Um, pretty dramatically. And I think at that point, I, I just realized whatever is happening here is so monumental and important mm-hmm. um, that it really needs to be covered. So, but actually it didn't occur to me. I don't know why. I mean, I'm a filmmaker. It seems like, duh, <laughs> like I would have thought like, this should be a film. I don't know why it took a little longer um, for that to hit me, but... <laughs> I was actually, I have a walk-in closet. Like I was getting dressed and I, I was this obsessed with this story. I was ruminating over it. Cause I was like, something has to be done. Like something somehow, you know, like this thing that's happening is big. Somebody needs to do something. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally like stopped like with my arm over my head, like half dropped And then I was like, this needs to be a documentary. I need to do a documentary. It's me. Like. It's I know I'm yeah. like, I can do this. I can do a documentary. And when it hit me, it was this, you know, Eureka kind of moment. Um, and so the next thought I had was, I don't have any money to do this. I've got to, you know, come up with some funding. So I. Um,
0: turns out making films I, costs costs some money.
2: It costs a lot of money, actually an extraordinary yes. amount of money. People seem to forget. Um, so, um So I thought I need to get somebody who would give me seed money to at least begin filming because immediately, like once I had that thought, like my producer brain wanted to overdrive. So like within 10 minutes, I'd had 8 million thoughts about what I need to do next. (laughs) And so the things that are flooding my mind are I need to start filming with her now because this is all happening in real time. But I need money immediately. Who would give me money? So I... Um, I thought of Dave Vanderveen, who's a friend of mine, mm-hmm. who was kicked out of Wheaton. Actually, when we were students there, he ended up graduating from Calvin. <laughs> now, Linda,
0: are you the only one in any of these stories so far that was not who was not kicked out of Wheaton?
2: I was not kicked oh, out of Wheaton. Okay,
0: <laughs> interesting. Okay,
2: huh. I might. Have, I think I've been kicked out. Kicked out, like this posthumously, point. Posthumously, yeah, posthumously. Yeah, like, I think I probably am kicked out, but they haven't sent me a letter notifying yeah, me. Yeah, they've
0: re- um, requested your degree back.
2: Um, yeah. So anyway, so I, I was like, I need to, I'm going to talk to David and like literally thought to myself, well, first of all, finish getting dressed. Cause I think I've been standing there like half dressed for 10 minutes. Important all details. Stuff. Important important my details. Mind, I know. So I'm like, finish getting dressed. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then maybe you could calm down for a few minutes and think about whether this is actually a good idea. So I'm like, let's try and be mature and think this through. And so, I mean, literally I'm like, 30 seconds later, okay, yeah, I've thought it through, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, Like I immediately called David and I'm like, David, I've got a great idea. <laughs> you know? So anyway, so David David came on board um, and I immediately kicked into overdrive with A, I had to find a shooter and do all this stuff, but I had to get Larisha on board. So um, because as I told David when I'm like, I have this, you know, I think it's a brilliant idea to do this, but... Uh, I'm not gonna do it unless Dr. Hawkins agrees to it. You know, there's no point in doing it without oh, her. Sure, sure. So um, so I found her email um and sent her a cold email and just said, This is who I am. And she had a friend from um college who was fielding her email at that point because things are way too out of control in her life to actually (laughs) it and so the friend vetted me is what it came down to the friend was like um you know I'm interested can you send me some samples of your work and so I did and we talked and she basically went back to Larisha and said I think you should do this um so by the time Larisha and I and Larisha's mom was getting um cancer treatment in houston Mm -hmm. i live in baton rouge louisiana so our very first interview was in houston and i it came together like within like two weeks i think all of this happened so i I was driving it's four hour four hour drive from baton rouge to houston and this has all happened so quickly like i've been working like a wild woman and have not talked to larisha yet i mean still all i'm doing is reading (laughs) about her in the news and um and Larisha and I always laugh at the story, but I'm driving and I literally, now that I'm like quiet and in the car by myself, I'm like, what am I gonna do if I get there? And she's crazy.
0: <laughs> 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 Not everybody who goes like viral all all is there good. good. I get there yeah. and I'll be
2: like, oh, yeah. that's why they're trying to get rid of you. So, um, <laughs> you know, anyway, it just, it's very funny when I think about it because I didn't know, you know, I just didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was gonna find when I met her. Mm. So.
0: <laughs> so
2: she's not crazy at all. I loved her when I met her. So that, that didn't last very long. Well,
0: and 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 you guys make this this film. Um, and how, how long did it take just to I mean, I know this editing process post-production, you've got, you know, a lot of different other B-roll and you've got some pretty key clips in there besides just the back and forth with Larisha. But you know, I mean, how 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 long did you shoot? to get what you needed to, to create this film.
2: I filmed with her for two and a half years. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was a process of, um, raising grant money. I had to get some more private investment. Mm -hmm. Um, I never raised enough money. So, um, I, there was a lot of just sweat equity that went into it, but we filmed for two and a half years and, um, I think it's important to note this, that the film Larisha was Larisha just sort of graciously allowed me to show up Hmm. and I would reach out to her every so often and be like, hey, I'd like to, you know, come film with you. Where are you going to be? Are you going to be in Chicago? Whatever. Um, And she would just put on the microphone and let us do our things. When I say that she literally never asked me once. What are you planning to do with this film? How is it going to be used? What's the angle that you're taking? Um, who else are you interviewing? We literally never had that conversation
3: mm.
2: over the course of years. So, um, you know, any mistakes in the film are purely mine, not hers. <laughs> <laughs> because she 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 completely removed herself from, um, from any of the creative process, which I greatly appreciated because it allowed me to really observe and um, for it to be as verite as possible Mm -hmm. so that it was as true to life as, as I could make it.
0: Mm. So Larissa, you, you and Linda, you guys are filming back and forth off and on must have been it's like an off and on relationship for two and a half years um, <laughs> sort of you know piecemealing pulling scraps from here and there every once in a while. Um, in the filming process and you know because I've I've worked in some more short form content, but I it's interesting sometimes what creating content or telling your story uh, sort of reveals to you about yourself um, in that process. Um, and so I'm just curious, like as you're filming this and you're still living the experience and kind of, I can't even imagine the trauma and the grief and anger, bitterness, like, I mean, I'm sure you felt all the things, um, through this process, regardless of the outcome, even if the outcome had been different, like it, it, what was done was done, you know, and and here you are at the center of this of this piece um, with what started. Just thinking back to the conversations you were having with um, with the Muslim community of it was such a benign thing. We're going to do this thing. We think it makes a lot of sense. Here's how we can frame it. Here's how we can teach people about. It. Like it was such a a generous dialogue between all the different groups behind the scenes, and yet. As soon as you flip the switch and it goes public, it's like the rest of the world was like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! We we don't we don't we don't go there. We don't do that. How dare you? You don't belong here anymore." Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We finally have a reason, or you know, whatever. So, um, I I'm curious, like as you sort of shared your story with Linda and, and whoever else um, along this path, what? what were some of the things about yourself that it either sort of revealed to you or, or solidified in you that I know for sure I have to do this or like, I have to take this trajectory. Um, You talk a little bit about, about that process. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, And it is interesting because um, Linda, this, Linda didn't, I don't know if it's clear to your listeners, but Linda didn't start filming after everything ended. Like she was filming in the, in the midst middle of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously there's like, um, you know, footage, news footage that is in the film that she didn't film herself. Right. But like, right. for instance, my final, um, final press conference, um, Linda was literally there. She was in town, you know? Mm. Um, my final chapel service she was in town so um and i didn't i'll say i did not know her at that point you right. know it was just like camera following me <laughs> um and i was too busy it's the best time for a camera to follow you because you're not self-conscious about yeah, the you, camera, don't, you don't really? have to think like, about it yeah yeah um fighting to save you know your job and um yeah so it's a, I don't know. It's a good question. Actually, I've done a lot of interviews and no one has ever asked me that question quite in that way. Um,
0: well, you, well you're, welcome. That. you're
1: welcome. Well, you know, I think that it revealed a lot of things. Mm. My dad says in the film, and many people tell me it's their favorite line. Like, she was a stubborn child and she's a stubborn adult. Mm. And, he, and he paused and then he said, And I mean that as a compliment Mm. Um, and he still calls me stubborn all the time. Um, And what is so interesting is, um, you know, it just reified that um, who I, there's a South African proverb, Ubuntu, um, and Ubuntu just points to this notion that we are nothing apart from our communities. And Linda often says, you know, one of the things that was a turning point for her in filming was going to Oklahoma and meeting my family.
3: Mm.
1: Because part of the problematic of a Facebook post announcing solidarity with an oppressed group of um, religionists who in many cases look just like me Yeah. Brown, black, you know, obviously there are white Muslims or Arab Muslims who kind of pass as white Mm -hmm. because we know that race is always operative in this country. Um, You know, white folks don't have to think about it. But if you are a minority religion and a minority human, um, you know, I don't even have to use the word intersectionality for your folks to understand um, the ways that Muslim women's bodies are targets. Uh-huh. And so when I say I'm embodying solidarity, the first thing my little sister said, and by which I mean my youngest sister, um she saw the post that evening and she called me and she said, I have Muslim um, doctor friends. My sister's a medical doctor. Um, she's a physician is what she says. I don't know why I say medical doctor. That sounded so like a little house on the prairie, you know, um, but she said, I have OBGYN Muslim black female friend who wears hijab. And she posted about how for the first time in her life, she's taking off her hijab because of all of the hatred happening. Mm. That's what was happening. And um, I wasn't going to back down, which is what my dad says in the film. You said she was going to do what she was going to do. She wasn't going to give up. You know, you wanted her to give up. I mean, it's not about giving up. It's about like, when you said, did you know that... Shit was going to go down. It's basically what you just asked mm-hmm. me. Forgive me. It's fine. No, S you're, words you're podcast. allowed to cuss okay. on this
0: podcast. I was like,
1: hell no. Like I wasn't thinking about in College, except I was thinking about, I'm going to wear this all the time. I'm going to wear it to work. And I said that in mm-hmm. the post, I'm going to wear it to church because I was making a commitment to embody, embody that oppression. I'm already a black woman. I ain't got nothing to lose. Whatever. <laughs> Um, that's who I am. That's who I've been. Um, you know, my experience of this country is oppression. I mean, Mm. the first time I experienced discrimination was in the institution that most of us, um, the institution that socializes most of us into what it means to be an American public education, (laughs) unless we go to private school or get homeschooled like you, like you, you know, Pledge allegiance to the flag, and they tell you to put your hand over your Mm -hmm. heart. Well, I don't pledge allegiance to a country, nor do I pledge allegiance to a symbol anymore. But that's the institution where I first realized that being Black meant I was not enough.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And so if an institution wants to say that the problem isn't the scarf on my head, it's the fact of what I said about solidarity in the name of Jesus, because I dare to say Muslims are my brothers and sisters and that God for the monotheist community is one because for my Hindu friends, there's not one God. Um, and then it's on. And it wasn't a fight. I wasn't picking a fight. If I wanted to pick a fight about Wheaton, it would be about like, not celebrating LGBTQ people for who they are
3: mm-hmm.
1: created in God's mm-hmm. image. It would have been about something else. I wasn't going to choose. I wasn't picking a fight. I wasn't thinking about them much to their chagrin. And so, um, I don't know what I learned about myself, um, except that I learned that, um, you know, Institutions are principalities and powers, and I always knew that. Yeah. And I was not going to let the principalities and powers thwart me operating in the Black prophetic mode in which I grew up. And I don't have to call it that. That's just who I am. That's what I embody. That's the ancestors that I carry with me. And so, to the white evangelical, yes. Christian world. My body, as you said, a few minutes ago was on that dividing line. And my mom literally called me and said, you're dividing Christianity. I said, I didn't do that.
3: Hmm.
1: It's already happening. Hmm. I teach, I teach religion and politics. I told my students the very first semester at Wheaton college, I said, I will give white evangelicalism 10 years before it begins to crumble. Well, guess what? It started crumbling right at my university. Yeah already afoot, right? And it's not just demographics, right? It's not just the coming of age of the millennials and the ascendance of Gen Z, right? It's the kind of stuff that Linda saw. People who aren't decided, people who hadn't thought um, that far about what God means. Uh Unity and Trinity, Trinity and unity. Well, you know. Catholics thought about that centuries ago, but the evangelicals not so much. So it's not my fault. I'm not dividing Christianity. Um, White supremacist Christianity um, divided itself.
0: And it's interesting too, when watershed moments like this pop up in our society, there's a part of me that grieves a bit too, that documentaries like this are even necessary you know um but on the other hand i think it's it's vital for our humanity um if for the faithful or the faithless regardless of the the category quote unquote it also it, i think it's so vital for us to have films like this that could be teachers uh for us in pivotal moments and you know again it's 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 one of the basis for this podcast of just i i have missed that part of community just because you feel a bit like a nomad um in your own in your own country in your own city in your own community and you, and you feel like you don't quite fit no matter where you turn and you know i'm saying that also recognizing that i am a white male and part of the reason that I feel like this now is because of the way that white males historically have set the whole damn thing up. You know what I mean? So now I'm like, well, wait a minute, how do we, uh, and I, and I, I think it's so important even in the conversations that I have with, with my sons and then I, we, have, so we have seven kids, which I think I mentioned before we recorded. I have five boys and I have two little girls and my youngest daughter Zuri. a she's basically already running for president. So I'm not super concerned about her. Um, that's going to be like, she she runs the world, um, you know, but even talking to my sons where the first part of their life, they grew up in this sort of predominantly white evangelical experience. And then they watched their dad and mom unplug from this and go, we cannot be here anymore. This place doesn't want us anyway. And of course our experience was because of the way that, that whole experience, we are not set up to invite the most vulnerable to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and I, you know, having a child with significant disability, you get to see that up close. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with the color of his skin or the his politics or his belief system or whatever. It's just because he exists. Oh, you don't quite fit what we had in mind for this experience. So, you know, so for us, you know, even talking to our oldest sons now of this is how the world is changing and, and and this is what we hope you can see. And, but, but I can't see it for you. You have to learn to see it yourself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so in the process of of creating this documentary over the course of two and a half years. And then even a thought process of how are we going to distribute this? Where are we going to run this? Who's going to be our audience? Will anybody give a shit? Like it's this whole, the angst of, you know, it's a story that must be told and that the world needs to digest. Um, But as you're sort of wrapping you know, and packaging it and getting it all prepped. And, you know, you get your cover art looking at just the way that you want it to. And, oh, the day that you were like, oh, it's genius. You put the same God in the hijab on her head and it's all the different, like I, I saw it, I could see it. I love clever things like that. But, you know, it's like those things, you, those of us who live those lives behind the curtain, we go, yes, we nailed it. But then you're gonna press, you know, print on this thing. And you're going to put it out to the world, which is a very, it's a, it's similar and different to Larisha pushing submit on her initial post that started the whole, you know, what did your mom say? She practically accused you of causing a schism. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what was that like for you, Linda, when you know, we've got the story, we've got it up until this point, this is the story that I know I've got to tell and, and you push it out. What, and for both of you lived that experience, and of course, you're the other part of the crew and the team. And what was that like to put it out to the world and start hearing? And I know that even 20, this is 2016, so 2020 though, it's coming back around again. I'm watching more conversations happening again because it's almost like it's almost like this story is something that needs to be told and retold, and retold and retold and retold and retold because the whole message leaks out of our brains and our hearts and we have to keep hearing it over and over and over again. So would you talk a little bit about finally putting it out to the world and um, what it was like, that heart-pounding moment of of waiting to see what how people were going to receive it and, and what happened afterwards?
2: My decision to do the film felt Like a compulsion for a lack of a better word, like something was driving Mm -hmm. me to do to tell the story that I struggled to explain, but it was deep inside of me, Um, you know, some people have suggested that was, you know. God's prompting or the Holy spirit or whatever you want to call it. That was pushing me to do it. It was intense. <laughs> sure. I will tell you that. Um, hmm. and I was immediately under suspicion for telling it because I, you know, I'm a white woman who grew up in the evangelical community and, um, I just will say that there was a lot of suspicion. Um, a lot of people were not happy that I was doing the film because it's, it was, this was a very embarrassing event for Wheaton College globally. And so mm. the last thing that people who love Wheaton wanted was for somebody to come along in that thing that they were trying to shove under the carpet and have it go away so that the PR crisis was over you know, they don't want to know that there's a filmmaker who's like, oh, no, I've got my camera light on. <laughs> this is, yeah. They've, yeah. They've, yeah. They've, I got a bigger light that, right here. I'm We're under gonna... there with you. <laughs> like, uh,
3: <laughs> yeah. You
2: are not yeah. getting rid of me. Um, and I that took a certain amount of tenacity just to deal with that. I mean, with them. Let's say within my own family, um, you know, I've had some family members who quietly said that they felt like I had betrayed my alma mater. Um, it was Mm -hmm. really hard for my mom and I don't, my mom may listen to this podcast. She has, she's 84 (laughs) and she's listening to my podcast now. So, um,
0: she's going to listen to a better podcast (laughs) with Larissa's (laughs) granny. What kind of podcast is that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, she and Granny can like talk about it. So, it was hard for her and I don't think she would mind me saying that publicly, but we had some really we had some really yeah. intense conversations and this is before the film came out and before she had seen it, but she was scared. And and I realized in a lot of our conversations she was very afraid for what it would mean for me and my family. And she said mm. that you're you're risking your family's safety by getting involved in this. Um, And Larisha, I mean, when you said your mom told you you were dividing Christianity, my mom told me that it would be a shame if I brought disgrace on Wheaton College, you know, that I was harming the school that had had this wonderful mission. Now, I get it. My parents paid Mm -hmm. a lot of money to send me to Wheaton College. So (laughs) I understand why she felt a little defensive. Mm Of, of It'd
0: be his, a shame if Wheaton College took all their money. Yeah,
2: I know. I know. But, but my response to really her, to much learn. like your response was, oh no, <laughs> I am yeah, not responsible as the storyteller. If I tell a story of people that have behaved badly, and then there are consequences because of that behavior, that is not on me. <laughs> I yeah. am the storyteller. I am not the person who caused this. And I am telling mm. the truth. Um, which you raised me to do incidentally, right? So I am doing that with as much integrity as I can muster. So the results of that, they are what they are. I'm not in control of that. I'm absolutely not in control how people receive this. The only thing I can do is literally, you know, whether metaphorically or spiritually, whatever, to be able to stand before God with a clear conscience and say, I did the best job I could. And you know what I mean? doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's as pure of an intent as I could have. And that's what I did. So, um, so all this to say that during the making of it for several years, that was hard. So I just didn't talk about it to mm. a lot of people. I was very quiet about it. Um, which I, Luisha and I, it's funny, Luisa, for some reason, listening to you talk today, I'm seeing these like funny parallels between us. Cause like you mentioned the thing where your dad said you were a stubborn child. And my dad always used to say this to me. He would get really frustrated. He say you he was like you're so stubborn. He said but you don't argue about it. You just if you disagree, you just get quiet and then you go away and do what you want to anyway. <laughs> <And> it's like <laughs> And that's me really because I'm like I'm going to do this because <laughs> I think it's yep. what I need to do but I'll, i don't have to talk about it you know like, i don't need to argue with you about it i'm just gonna go do it <laughs> so
0: i think my parents would probably say the opposite about me i'm very stubborn and i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do but i'm definitely gonna talk about it like i'm the oldest of eight so okay. you're definitely gonna hear from me on these things
2: and I'm, so. I'm the baby of four and so i think i learned a long time ago uh, where yeah. i'm like you guys all talk you all take control and talk about it amongst yourselves i'm yeah. you just You can go get in trouble. I'm I'm going to go over here here and do my thing, right? (laughs) Anyway, this is a very long answer to your question. All this is, there's a lot of buildup going into it, you know? Um, And of course you feel like as a filmmaker, you know, part of the creative process is some days you're like, this is so brilliant and amazing. And other days you're like, this is the most horrible thing. Nobody's ever going to, you know, have any feelings. So you'd go up and down and do all that. Um, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: You know, I think that releasing the film, We premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival in 2018, and I can't even explain to you what that was like to have it screened in front of a live audience for the first time. Mm. Um, And then we had to go up for a panel discussion afterwards. And, you know, Larisha and I, I mean, I think for both of us, it was probably incredibly surreal to be in that moment. I mean, the, the most gratifying thing I was, my editor flew out from Chicago. So we're in LA we're, we're holding each other's hands and I'm shaking while the film is playing for the first time. And then there's like people laugh at the part where we thought they would laugh. And I- my editor and I looked at each other and we like, they laughed, they laughed where we thought they would. And then we're like, they're nailed crying. you nailed it. You're crying, they're good. I wanted them to cry, yay. So like, we were so just like completely overcome with emotion. I made the terrible mistake of wearing like four inch heels. I had borrowed some shoes from a friend, which was horrible because I was such a ball of anxiety that not only could I barely talk, but I could barely walk. So I literally like hobbled to the front afterwards thinking this was... Like, it just terrible decision-making.
0: Um, Linda, who among us, who among <laughs> us sorry. has not made <laughs> um, So I had originally followed the story and the film. And then, of course, our mutual buddy, Greg Thornberry, tagged yeah. me, tagged me in some Twitter posts about Larisha. And that's how it sort of all came back around for me, uh, in the story of, of the film, but it was, it was like it had all come back up to the surface again. And so like the film came out originally, what, 2016, is that right? It was was 2018. Yeah. Okay. So then that, it makes its rounds. You guys do your thing. And now at the end of 2019, and then into this year, as unique as this year has been across the board, like the two of you have found yourself this year, guiding conversations, participating in conversations that probably wouldn't have happened unless the film had happened, um, at least not in the way they're happening right now. Would you just talk about how some of that's come back around and and maybe some of the impact that you feel you're able to participate in this year, both maybe individually and together, just because the ripples of, of the film keep going on?
2: I will say this. I feel like the film has served somewhat of a prophetic function because I think that what uh, Larisha did was prophetic. She wasn't trying to be a prophet. <laughs> um, I think just in that moment that um, it was the beginning of things that were hidden to some of us coming into the open. Mm-hmm. And I am more convinced of that now than I was then when I started When I started the film, very um, open-minded from a journalist perspective, trying to have as little of an agenda as I could Mm -hmm. and just sort of exploring where things took me Um, and, and reading and studying about race and evangelicalism and trying to answer the question of, how much was race a part of this? Was it really about theology? All these things. Mm-hmm. Um, where that led me, of course, is is where the film is, and that is the, the film. I will tell you, I I had one evangelical male who watched the film who has a ministry with Muslims, <laughs> ironically. Yeah. Um, who basically, <laughs> she basically accused me of conflating. White Christian nationalism with evangelicalism—that was the gist of the message. Um, and this was like a couple of years ago. This was after um, you know Trump had been president for a couple of years. There's there was a defensiveness there that I mm. frequently gotten. So I
0: was it too much of a mirror, you think?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so mm. um, the, the evangelical marriage with white Christian nationalism is just on full display. So if I started this film now, it would be a completely different film. Mm-hmm. Right. Because now it's not even that questionable. When I started it five years ago and was really unpeeling the onion of how much of this is race and how does the evangelical marriage with the Republican Party and politics play into it as I was trying to suss all that stuff out. Yeah. And and like white supremacy was not part of the lexicon. That was not something that people were talking about openly. Now it yeah. is in right? hushed in but hushed. I didn't tones. have the yep. word white I didn't go into this thinking this is an example of white supremacy. I didn't know. I didn't have the language for <laughs> yeah. that. I mean I was more like I see this thing and I'm trying to explain to you what I see as a storyteller, these are the things that go into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, and because I'm not an academic, like I didn't know the word intersectionality. Like Larisha said that to me at one point. I'm like, yes, that describes all these divergent things that come together. Intersectionality. <laughs> There's a word like, for that. Oh wow, yeah, everybody's been saying it, you know, twenty <laughs> years. But I have not in college in a really long time, so you know, I mean, so but my my point is that I I didn't know that, but but as I followed the thread or the Breadcrumbs, or however, whatever analogy you want to use, what happened to Larisha is a mirror for white evangelicals. Is it is a mirror that just that I think actually, as empathetically as possible, says this is, this is who you are. Here are the here are, here are the things that are wrong.
0: What I think is so beautiful about the film having been, you know, the story that you filmed then versus now, is that I almost wonder if you filmed it now, if it would be less about the human story of Larisha and more about the issues of the day. Whereas for me, in those moments where things inside me, beliefs, um, the old guard of my faith was totally unraveled, it almost always came down to someone's story. It wasn't because I saw now the statistics later or, you know, uh, the full history of something later always confirmed, oh, my God, this is true. Um, But someone's story almost always was the the, sort of that key that Mm -hmm. unlocked that journey for me. So I'm, you know, as as messy as some of the issues are that we all experience every day now. I think your story seemed to have hit at the right. I mean, that moment in the, your closet with your hand in the air, um, <laughs> that's a, that's a very important moment. It's, it's an important moment, just like hitting submit on Facebook was an important moment. And, 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 you know, those two moments are essentially the same in their weight because they've been, I mean, I, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Um, and, you know, so to that end, I, I we've got a couple more minutes here, but I, at the end of my podcast conversations, I always asked guests, um, how do we have better sex fully understanding that the answer to that question is an eternal answer. Like there will never be a moment where we're like, Oh, we fixed it. Um, ah, we did it. You guys high five. We're done. Uh, we made this documentary and we did, we did the thing it's over. Um, but I think these things have to continue. So, but right now as we sit and, um, I'm just curious from both of your perspectives, um, how how do we make, create, have better sex um, in our society, in our communities, in our um, houses of faith, in our politics, in our storytelling, like um, in our classrooms. Um, i'm I'm curious what your answer uh, to that would be.
1: I would say that I teach students. Um, they're not my kids, but like, I love them. Uh, I love students. Mm-hmm. Students are a mirror to me. Um, they are a form of accountability, um, to wed theory and praxis, um, and to embody justice. And that's what we were thinking about. I had started a piece in conflict studies program, and the question is, um, we cannot sit in a classroom and talk about theories of justice. Um, as Jesus people, we are called to be justice in the world, wow. to embody it. I don't teach my students to vote for Democrats or Republicans. They're the same to me. I'm a political scientist, like our party system, whatevs. Um, and more and more people are beginning to see this, right? But By
0: the way, that's profound. Our party system, whatevs. Oh, it's like quote of the day
1: that is <laughs> the crap yeah, it's okay, my very worst analysis whatever. um but i say that to say like i don't i you know in general i don't care who you vote for this time i do because it's because it's literally life and death like it's existential yeah. like what's at stake is not democracy it's humanity mm-hmm. right now for those who profess to follow the jesus and i say that because it's not about a church. It's not about an institution. Um, the early church was just a ragamuffin band of people, mm-hmm. um, who met in people's houses and had meals and shared things with each other in a very radical kind of commune mm-hmm. way. Um, and I think that's the kind of movement that that's who I want to be and what I want to be about. And I do think that better sex is just about being, more human. Mm. It's about um, seeing and it's having the eyes to see, um, to see others in their distress and in their oppression. And also we're not human if we're not creating, if we're Mm. not expressing, um, if we're not attuned to the sorrow, to one another's bodies. Um, to what's really happening? If we're not embodied, if we're not alive, um, then what is then what is sex?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: If you're not embodied and alive, and and creative and expressive, and um, yeah, I, I think that's what it's about. It really is ultimately about becoming more human. Who I, I I've been using this mantra this semester with my students: who you be and who you becoming, Hmm. who you be, in in the like real African sense of the Mm -hmm. word, who you be. That's not Ebonics. That's the essential question, who you be and who you becoming. And as long as a couple is intent on honoring who you be and who I be, then they can become um, both separately and together. And that's the best sex, I would imagine. Um, and I'll strive for that being and becoming and being honored and respected in that without coming together, yes, but without canceling out the totality of the other. That's the essence of collaboration. I would think.
0: that's even that's subjective and objective. It talks yeah, to the
1: true.
0: the community between two and the community between the many. I um, mm-hmm. find
1: that intimacy mm-hmm. there. It's so respectful always. So.
0: All right, Linda, you're up. <laughs> <How do>
1: we... <laughs> that was a long answer, but that's all I
2: got. No, no. I like, I always like trying to follow show when she's really profound and prophetic like that. That's always a good position. I can there. tell
0: it's one of your favorite things to do.
2: Exactly. Good. Um, how do I think we could have better sex?
1: Yeah. Um, I to me you can tell she's evangelical because she laughed when she said that. We, we all do. We still all do. We <laughs> it's a giggly. Yeah. Oh,
2: <laughs> oh, um I to me, to me, uh in addition to everything Larissa just said very beautifully, um, I think it's I think curiosity is the key. I think that um mm. curiosity has the potential to save the world and to save ourselves, and I, I think in the same vein of what Larisha was just saying, it is um, fostering a sense of curiosity within within us of what does it mean to be someone other than myself? What is someone's? Mm. What is somebody else's experience like? What is it like to be them? Um when I filmed with Larisha, the the first question I had from her was just, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Mm. (laughs) Where are you from? You know? And it was by listening to her and really listening, listening without trying to define myself with her answers and without trying to have an opinion about her answer, literally just trying to absorb her answers. What is she saying? And what are other questions I need to ask based on what she's saying? That was, that's, that's my agenda when I tell a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, incidentally, for anybody who's been married more than 10 minutes and has been in marriage counseling, that's what happens when you go to marriage counseling, you pay somebody really good money so that they can teach you how to listen to each other. That's really what it boils down <laughs> to, because somehow this is... Not human. I don't know. I don't know why, as human beings, this is such a challenge, but it is. When you're in when you're in intimate relationship with somebody, that's always the struggle, is learning to hear what they are saying without defending yourself and trying to find that. Balance. And also, of course, you have to learn to express yourself. That is the flip side of it. Mm. But you can't control that. You can't control whether other people are listening to you. The only thing you can control is are you are you listening to them? Are Mm -hmm. you making that effort? Um, I think that we suffer as a world from just a real lack of curiosity about what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to Mm. be? a person with brown skin? What does it mean to be a person who's come from another country? Why are you here? What brought you here? Um, What, you know what I mean? All these questions that I think if we just asked each other and just listened, yeah, we're gonna disagree on some things, but that shared humanity would be there because when you listen to people, if you sit down and actually talk to a Muslim, you're going to find out that they have the same concerns about their children that you have about yours, right?
3: Absolutely. Not,
2: there's nothing. There's nothing. There's. It's not rocket science, right? right. Absolutely. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I think that that's. Uh, I think that's the key. And also, you know, I will say, if you're curious about your partner, you'll probably have better sex too. So we'll leave that there.
0: I try to sneak in a quote from Frederick Buechner in every episode. Um but I love what he says and this is probably a, somewhat of a paraphrase, but he talks about how compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity to feel what it's like to be in someone else's skin. Good thoughts today guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your time. Um I'm grateful that you met each other and that you told this beautiful story in same god together. Um and I'm, I'm grateful for what happens next. Both of you have used the word prophetic, but I think that's very true. It's that, um, you know, the, the challenge that we have now, I suppose, versus thousands and thousands of years ago is you're not out in the middle of the desert eating locusts and wild honey, but you're having to, 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 to tell the message over the sound of all the other noise that we have, um, so um i'm grateful for both of you thank you for your time today and your vulnerability and willingness to to share your story with me and um, i'm looking forward to seeing where your story goes next i hope you enjoyed this episode of better sex if you liked or were challenged by what you heard you can subscribe to the sex therapy list on my website bettersex.com b-e-t-t-e-r-s-e-c-t-s.com You can follow us on all social platforms on the handle at BetterSex. And please like and share this episode with anyone you think would appreciate the conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Matthew Chambers. We'll see you next time for another episode of Better Sex.